You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Well, hey, church family, um, if you have a Bible, you can turn to Luke 7. Uh, my name is Jonathan, one of the pastors here, and it's just a real privilege, as always, to open up God's Word for us. And I just want to say I, I love this church. We love you guys, and uh, man, just expectant for what God has for us. Luke 7, we're going to be in 36 through 50. In your New Testament, there's four eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you're new to Bible study, if you're new to church, and there's a Bible in the seat in front of you, you could just open that up to the middle and start turning to the right. When you start seeing words about Jesus, you're, you're really close to Luke. And so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Luke 7, 36 through 50. Let me orient you to where we are in our sermon and teaching series. These past six weeks, we've done a series called A Praying Life, just begging that God would change us and give us a new way to live characterized by a praying life. And I have just personally, I think we have corporately been so um, just encouraged and humbled and changed by and thankful for that. That came to an end last week. Uh, Next week, really excited, Shay's gonna kick off a two-week series. We're gonna talk about how do we love and see the vulnerable among us in the city of Dallas, particularly children. So really excited about that. But this week's just like a standalone freebie, Labor Day, Luke 7, 36 through 50. And I am... Like I said, so expectant. You're probably there now. Let's just read it together. God's word says this. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and he reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering him said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, though, one, I suppose, from whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins. And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I just want to pray over this. Father in heaven, we want to see Jesus, lift up Jesus so that we might see him as he is and respond rightly to him. We want our lives marked by Jesus, marked by love in a culture that defaults to karma and mere religion and anti-mercy, anti-grace. Show us Jesus and may we respond like this woman, warmly welcoming, affectionate, passionate, abandoned, humble repentance. Change us. For Jesus' sake, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, about two weeks ago, I had the privilege to um, 
perform a wedding for a couple Northway members here. And um, after the wedding ceremony was over, I kind of went outside to get like a little bit of fresh air. I know, surprising in this Dallas heat, but I, I needed a little something. And, and out there was a young man uh, who I got to meet briefly, and, and he recognized me as the officiant of the wedding. And he said to me, hey, you just need to know that um, I'm not really into religion. And, and if you know me, um, that's not an offensive statement to me. That's an inviting statement. Like, I was so excited by that. And I, I just said, um, that's probably a little weird, but I, I just said, man, t- t- tell me more about that. You know, like I was just so eager, not for a fight. I just wanted to hear his story. And I, tell me about that. So he began to tell me some of his story. And he began to tell me how he dabbled in religion a little bit, that he was burned by religion, that he had left it. And basically, uh, and I just loved him opening up his story to me. So humbling for me. At the end, he basically said something like this. At the end of the day, he said, I just really come to this conclusion, like all, all religions, they're basically the same. They're basically offering the same thing. And I just want us to hear today, that right, that right there uh, is the biggest objection to Christianity in our current day that all religions are essentially the same and that, and that no religion or person has the right to have a higher truth claim than the other. This is the biggest objection right now, the biggest obstacle, the biggest thing that makes Christianity believable or hopeful or inviting to people. It, it's this, it's what this man so articulated. Um, C.S. Lewis, one-time atheist who held academic positions at both Oxford and Cambridge, but he's probably best uh, well-known for his children's series, right? Chronicles of Narnia. Um, He walked into a room at Cambridge once where a group of his fellow professors were discussing world religions. They were comparing them. Uh, They had a chalkboard out showing like how they were all the same and what was in common. And he came in and they said, hey, Lewis is a Christian. Like what's different? Like what's the difference about Christianity? And he famously responded to them. It's simple. It's grace. That's the uniqueness. That is the uniqueness of Christianity. What, what's unique about Christianity among other religions? It's, it's grace. And for us, grace is embodied. Grace has a name and it's Jesus. It's, it's our Lord Jesus. Hear this, Christianity isn't just about what you profess. What you profess is incredibly important, but you can profess the right things and miss the center of Christianity. Christianity isn't centrally about what we practice. Practices are extremely important, but you could practice the right things and miss the center and the essence of Christianity. Christianity is centrally about a person, and that person is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so who we think he is and how we see him and how we respond to him is arguably the central question for us at any moment or any day that we step into. Get the setting for this text in Luke 7. There are other similar accounts like this in the scriptures. Just want to say that briefly up front. There's an account in Matthew 26, Mark 14, and John 12 that are similar accounts but this is not the same count. Luke gives us a unique account. The simple thought on that is there are different people in those accounts. There's a different Simon in those accounts. It's Simon the leper versus Simon the Pharisee here. Simon was like a super popular name. It would be like last name Smith here in our day and time. Like it was just really common. That wasn't shocking for many people to be named Simon. This is Simon the Pharisee. There's a different response to Jesus. There's different critics to Jesus. There's different actions. This is a unique account in the gospel of Luke. And I just gotta tell you, 
I love the Gospel of Luke. Just in case you're wondering, it's, it's my favorite gospel. Luke uniquely highlights women in his gospel. He uniquely highlights the marginalized. He uniquely highlights those in our day and time. People would say Christianity isn't for those people. You, Luke uniquely highlights them. We don't have time this morning. Come talk to me afterwards, but it's beautiful. All throughout his gospel, he highlights those on the margins, particularly women, leading the way and showing us beautiful examples of how to follow Jesus. And this here is no different. So you've got... Uh, a Pharisee in this text, Pharisees were known for their right thinking. They were known for the way they followed Jesus, to, or sorry, followed the law to a T, but at times missed Jesus. They were known at times for a little bit of, uh, if you don't do it this way, then, then you're not doing it the right way, that there was a stodginess at times and a coldness. And then here's this woman, and under uh, your text might say the, the sinful woman, that might be kind of offensive to some of you, like, well, why is it titled like that? It, in this day and time, it was the moniker that represented her occupation. Uh, she was most likely a prostitute, and so when people saw her in this day and time, that's how the moniker over her life was sinful, was sinner. These are the characters, the main characters alongside Jesus in our text this morning. What I want us to see is that um, there are two responses to Jesus here. It's not just the woman, it's also this this Pharisee here, there's, there's two responses to Jesus and they're paralleled in this text in such a way, kind of like a good uh, Eastern teaching would be to help us compare and contrast and then learn who is this Jesus and how might we respond to him. Okay, so this scene, you look here at verse 36 and it says that one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him and he goes to his house and they took place at the table. Just one last thing culturally that we need to know here to get this scene is they would have been reclining at a table. They would have been laying down to eat and their feet would have been out away from the table. So some of you, this is helpful for you. Like some of you people during college football, when you lay down and you're eating your wings, they call you lazy. Now you can just say, hey, it's biblical, you know, like, um, but... So here they are, but this is unique, okay? This would have either happened on a Sabbath or a party. And so imagine this, imagine like this is the event in the city. It was over a meal. The doors are wide open. Guests can come and go. Guests could sit along the wall and listen to the interaction. That was completely normal for this to happen. Everyone's lying down, they're reclining, they're eating. What wasn't abnormal was for this woman to be there. What was abnormal is what happens when she begins to approach Jesus. So look at it at verse 37. Luke says, and behold. In other words, like, look at this. See, take notice. A woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that Jesus was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. So this flask was made out of a smooth stone and it contained precious perfume. It, it, it was a valuable, it was expensive. It had a long skinny neck at the top that if you wanted to pour it out, you would have had to break it and no more have that perfume that for many women in the day, they would wear around their neck and it was a sign of beauty. It was a sign of, of, of just winsomeness and attractiveness. And so she's got this alabaster um, ointment around her neck, this welcoming fragrance that's emitting from her that she's coming intending to anoint Jesus with. Look at 38, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Now, this isn't like the sniffle, hold back the tears that many of us do when we start to cry. 
her tears are pouring out. The same word for this word weeping is the word that's used in the scriptures when rain pours down. Think the on and off flood-ish type of rain we've had here in Dallas. It is pouring. Her tears are coming down and she begins to wet Jesus's feet with these tears and then wipe them with her hair. She, her hair that would have been up in this day of time, she let it down. This was a, a cultural stigma. She shouldn't have done this. It would have been seen as immodest. And what are you doing? Well, well someone's got someone's to wash the feet of this man. I know who he is and I've got to respond to him rightly. Someone's got to do it. She lets down her hair and she begins to wash the feet of Jesus. And then look, she begins, she's broken this alabaster flask and she's anointing Jesus's feet with ointment. And now this Pharisee who had invited Jesus, it's kind of like, he's like, you know, like I'm the one that invited him to the party. What's happening here? He saw this and he says, hear this to himself. He's he's thinking, he's in his head. If if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him for she's a sinner. And then seriously, guys, don't mess with Jesus. Jesus answers him. Okay, that's been freaking me out this week. Okay, he's got thoughts. Jesus starts to answer his thoughts. Jesus answers him and says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. Just wants to talk about these responses here for a second. Here's, here's where we're gonna go. I want us to see these two responses. And then, I, and then I, as we compare and contrast them, I want us just to ask why and look at why the text shows us why. So see, see the first response. Two people are seeking Jesus. It would have been very bold for the Pharisee to invite Jesus in. Two are seeking him. One, I would say, gets Jesus. This first response, look at the woman. She, she's warm. She's welcoming. It's a display of love, is it not? This is, this is love expressed, love manifested. In fact, the very word used for love later in the text could be translated welcome. She is warm. She's affectionate. affectionate. Her, her love for Jesus is personal and her love for Jesus is relational. This is shown primarily in the way that she relates to Jesus. She kisses his feet. A kiss was a sign of affection in this culture. She touches Jesus. She weeps upon Jesus. She lets her hair down to wipe his feet with tears. And then she continues to kiss his feet and kiss his feet and kiss his feet. But the Pharisee, and hear this, he's seen as more distant and cold. His relationship to Jesus is more detached. He has a clipboard in his hand, so to say. His is more intellectual. He is in his head. Hers has manifested to her heart. He's evaluating. Here, this Simon the Pharisee seems to want to evaluate Jesus. He seems to want to evaluate Jesus and see if the way Jesus is acting uh, matches up with, with the, the way that the world is plausible and right and real to him. And, and he's not sure that it matches up. He wants to evaluate Jesus, but this woman, she wants to experience Jesus. His eyes are full of testing and judgment. Her eyes are full of tears because she's responding to Jesus and who he is to her. A second major contrast here, Simon, he seems to hold back a little bit. His love is restrained. It's cautious. He's watching Jesus. He's thinking about the interaction. He does nothing. And in his mind, he's probably thinking, this woman has done many things wrong. I have done what is right. But, in his, but that's the problem. He does nothing. That's his very problem. He sits there and relates to Jesus in only a cold, distant, and, and, and minor type of way. But this woman, hear this, she gives all. Like she comes with full abandon. This is, again, love expressed, is it not? Um, she expresses her love to Jesus in full abandon, 
Think about the very alabaster jar around her neck, this, this little ointment that she would have broken out. It would have been, if it's true her occupation as a sinner, if that's true her occupation, it would have been one of the main things saying to people that she is beautiful, uh, that she is worthy, and look what she does for Jesus. She breaks it and she pours it out at his feet, as if saying the very thing that I've been holding on to, I, I lay it before you, Jesus. She, she gives all, which is beautiful. This, this Pharisee, he is restrained. So hear this, Simon the Pharisee responds with a minimal type of love. I see it as like an eyedropper love, like he's got love and an eyedropper and he's gonna give like a little, I'll invite him. I think Jesus is respectable. I'm interested in Jesus. I'm a little cautious, but let's see what he's like. And hers is like a waterfall. She is just giving all. She's bringing everything. Again, it's extravagant love. And you see it in her tears. I just wanna say this, this isn't just the sinful woman. This type of warm, affectionate, welcoming, personal, extravagant, give all love is what has characterized the saints who have had this burning heart for the Lord Jesus Christ throughout the ages. This is the early saints who gave their lives as witnesses and martyrs. A couple thousand years, we're part of a long history. And for them to have the name of their Lord Jesus on their lips and their dying breath was the highest of honors. They loved the Lord Jesus Christ. This is Count Zinzendorf, the great Moravian leader. He said this, I have one passion, it is he and it's he alone. This is hymns throughout the ages. It's some of the songs that we just sang leading up to the sermon. It's older songs like Jesus, the very thought of thee, it fills my heart with love or take my love, my Lord, I pour at your feet, it's treasure store. Take myself and I will be only all, only all for thee. So just, just to stop for a minute, like what, what about you? Like where, as you come in today, this Labor Day weekend, like where, where do you find yourself? Is your, how, how do you relate to Jesus? How, how do you see Jesus? Is it an intimate, personal relationship that has characterized the Lord's people through the ages? Is it mere interest and intrigue? It isn't enough, I put before us. Is it, it's possible to have orthodox belief and orthodox practices that, that fall short. The question is, how, how do you respond to Jesus? Is, is he real to you? Do you have a living relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's been really influential for me on this text, said the ultimate test of a Christian's profession is love. The ultimate test is love. Okay, so turn the corner. How, how, how do we get there? Let me just say this in pastoral confession. Um, where did this text come from? Two months ago, I'm in New Hampshire, um, hanging out with my wife and her family, while some of you were enduring the awful heat that week where I was in New Hampshire, and uh, I don't know why I said that. And I, um, I'm in Luke, and this text just leaps off the page to me. It leaps off the page and begins to grab a hold of my heart. But can I be honest with you, if this is a safe place, for almost two months, I've been thinking about this text, reading this text, on and off, and the entire time, I thought I was the sinful woman, you know? Like I've thought, like her response is what I mean by that. I, I, I'm thinking, that's me. Like other people are Pharisees. This is how I treat Jesus. And it took me 40 plus days. It took me closer to 80 days. Help me with my math this morning um, 
to see that, no, no, Jonathan, like you're the Pharisee. And for the Lord and his kindness through his word and through the beauty of his son, just to begin to cut my heart and show ways where I am cautious and restrained, where, I, where I'm still not willing to give all, where I've got a couple chips over here that I'm holding, where I'm, where I'm in my head a lot and I'm missing the Lord Jesus Christ in my midst. And the question I've been asking is what did Jesus say to Simon to try to beckon him to see like this woman? And so what would he maybe say to us? And that's just where we go in the rest of the text. There's three questions that drive the rest of this text and they're, they're beautiful. And I, I think if we get them, it'll start to, to lead us to, to a new way to live. Look what Jesus says in 41 to Simon. He begins to tell him a parable. He begins to tell him this story. And he says, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, the one I suppose from whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, Simon, Simon, you have judged rightly. Okay, so, so see this. At times we can get hung up on those numbers. Uh, it's like 10 times more debt, uh, 500 versus 50. That's important. That's not centrally important. What Jesus is trying to show Simon and us is that there were two debts. Simon doesn't think he has a debt. He certainly doesn't think he has a large debt. And Jesus is trying to show, like, Simon, there, there are two debts in this parable. There are two people that had an insurmountable debt that they couldn't pay. And when you have a debt that you couldn't pay, you're at the mercy of the person that you owe the debt to. When you realize you have the debt and then realize you can't pay, those are two huge steps in understanding the grace of God. And our day and time, those are really offensive for most people. They, they, they wouldn't say they trust Jesus. To say I have a debt, in other words, to say something's broken in me that I can't fix, to say that I need rescue, okay, that's, that's one step. And then to, to make another step, to say you can't rescue yourself, you, you've got a debt, you can't pay your debt. You, you're broken. You need rescue. You can't rescue yourself. Those are two incredibly hard things for us to get our heart around. And Jesus is trying to show this Pharisee, Simon, do you see that this is true for you? Maybe this will be helpful. My wife and I, early on in our marriage, we, we had a, a lot of hospital bills. I had been sick a bunch and we had a bunch of hospital bills. Some were very large. Some were not as large. And by the grace of God, we were able to, over time, go through each and every one of those bills, we thought, and pay them off. Then all of a sudden, it comes time to talk about making a major investment, look at a house, stuff like that. We, uh, we get our credit report back. And like, we've been sent to the creditor over one of those bills. And we're thinking, what? We paid every bill, particularly, I can promise you, we paid every large bill. Here's what we found out. There was a radiology company in Dallas whose name will go unnamed here today because it's still got some bitterness in my heart, who had taken a $29 bill from us and sent us to the creditor. And we're thinking, are you joking? What, they did that five years ago? You know, what, what in the world? But here's what we know to be true. Is it, is it not true that for a creditor, it doesn't matter if it's 29,000 or 2,900 or $29, you're getting sent to the creditor because debt is debt. And Jesus is trying to show Simon that. Maybe here's a different way to say it um, that I've heard Tim Keller say that's helpful, that not only is debt, debt, dead is dead. If you're in the middle of your sleep and you get bit by a spider, um, you are pretty dead, is what Keller says. If you get, this is rough, mauled by a lion, you are ugly dead. <laughs> but, the, but he says, either way, you're dead. Do you, do you see Simon? Simon says, I'm pretty dead. I'm prettied up dead. I have minor debt. She has large debt. She's ugly dead. I'm prettied up dead. But for Jesus, debt is debt. 
And death is death. You've got a problem that you can't fix. And if we don't see those things, we, we won't see and comprehend the grace of God. And so you've got to see that you had a debt. You've got to see you couldn't pay it and then see it was paid at great cost to the giver. It was paid at great cost to the Savior. He paid the debt you couldn't pay at great cost. Isn't this true about forgiveness? Someone pays when it comes to forgiveness. Either you cancel the debt and say to that person, you don't owe me anymore, or they absorb. You absorb the debt or they absorb the debt. Someone's going to absorb it. We had a man, a fully God, fully man, who stepped in our place, paid our sin and debt, and took what was owed us at great cost to himself. That's Remind of the words of another old hymn, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. So that tag that came later. So praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the grave. Okay, so we, we had a great debt we couldn't pay. Jesus first tries to show Simon through a question, who will love him more to see the debt? You've got to see the debt. How might the penny drop? What if we still don't see it this morning? What if we still aren't moved from a Simon-like mentality to this woman? Like, how do we get there? And the second thing I would say that Jesus does is not just say you've got to see the debt. I think next he just says, you've got to, Simon, you've got to see this woman. Look at 44. Then turning towards the woman, he says to Simon, do you see this woman? That I think would have been offensive too. Has Simon not seen the woman? This is the woman that he has judged. This is the woman that's made him skeptical about Jesus. This is the woman that he is frustrated about that Jesus has welcomed her and let her in the presence and not condemned the very actions and person that she is. Simon has seen this woman, has he not? But Jesus says, no, Simon, do you see this woman? And I think what Jesus is trying to do here is say, do you see the way that she has expressed love? because the way that she has expressed love is very counter to the way that you have expressed love. You really haven't expressed love. She has expressed love. And if you will see that she has expressed love, Simon, you will see that the root of her expressed love, the fruit, is a forgiven woman, is a changed woman, is a different woman who actually has seen her debt. Jesus, like a good teacher, gives Simon an illustration that's happened right in front of him. And he begins to contrast. Uh, do, you, do you see this woman? She has uh, you gave me no water for my feet. It would have been customary, not, not required, but customary to wash the feet of someone who came to eat with you because they were wearing sandals and walking among dusty, dirty, gross roads. It would have been customary. He says, you, you didn't even, no one washed my feet at this party except this woman. She, and she even wet them with her tears of affection and love for me. She wiped them with her very hair. Simon, you gave me no kiss. Again, not a required thing, but that would have been very common in this culture as a sign of affection to kiss. It's still common in many parts of the world today. You gave me no kiss, but, but she hasn't ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil. One last thing that would have been common is for the guest to anoint the head with this, this cooling and fragrant olive oil. You didn't even do that. Well, she, she took it a step further in this precious alabaster ointment. She has given that to my feet. And he says, don't miss this. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Now, hold up. It sounds like for a second, Jesus is saying, okay, um, she, her sins are forgiven. Why? Because she loves much. That, that's not what he's saying. Look at the second part of the statement. He says, for he who is forgiven little loves little. Jesus is trying to show Simon that the expression of your love manifested for Jesus reflects whether you are aware of the debt from which you've forgiven, whether you are aware of the lengths to which he went to forgive you. And then Jesus makes this amazing statement. He said to her, your sins, your sins are forgiven. 
had already been forgiven. Jesus is declaring what was true of her. She, he is announcing her true identity. I think that this text shouldn't be called the sinful woman anymore. It should be the forgiven woman. Like this is who she is. This is what Jesus says is true about her. She had a debt that she couldn't pay and she gets it paid because of the savior. It's, it's beautiful. Look how the text ends in 49 through 50. And so those at the table, some of the Pharisees and friends begin to say among themselves, so, well, then who, who is this? Who even says he can forgive sins? It, it's skepticism. It's been skepticism in Luke 5. It's still skeptical throughout the rest of Luke. They're, they're not sure. And then look what Jesus says. Jesus says to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Man, man I love that. Do you see how, she, last thing, you gotta see Jesus. Do you see how he's treated her? Uh, from the moment she came in, Jesus has welcomed her. When everyone else thought he would stiff arm her, she, he has welcomed her affection. Secondly, when Simon and others begin to condemn her in their mind, Jesus actually defends her. Jesus defends her through all of them. Then Jesus speaks up and speaks to her once and says, your sins are forgiven. And then he speaks to her a second time and says, taught her, like, your, your faith has saved you Go in peace, go in peace. I just wanna put before us, when you, when you hear those words from Jesus, if you are in Christ, when you hear those words for Jesus, that you are forgiven and you can go in peace, nothing else matters. When you hear those words, nothing else matters because all of a sudden your greatest burden has been relieved. All of a sudden your greatest stress and anxiety has, has been undone. Your worst day, that was possible has already happened to you. When the forgiver, when the savior looks you in the eye and speaks to you and says, your sins are forgiven, go in peace. Your best day has already happened. You're not waiting for some best day and longing for some idealized best day to come because when the savior looks you in the eye and says, your sins are forgiven, go in peace, your best day already has happened too because he has canceled your sins that you're seated with Christ in heavenly realms. You are washed and renewed and cleansed and chosen and accepted and beloved. He's He's not just paid your debt. He's not just raised you from the dead. He has given you a new identity and a new name that you get to walk in confidence with throughout the rest of your life. I just wanna put before us, I think this is this woman. I think this is what she gets to walk out with. In closing, I just wanna close with one picture. And then I just wanna give us a little bit of time to reflect. We've done that a lot in the prayer series and I feel like to not have too much whiplash. So I just wanna give us that one more time today before we close in prayer. But um, there's a singer uh, for a band called U2 and his name's Bono. And that sounds kind of weird to introduce it like that because like, I'm just realizing a lot of people don't know who he is. So um, 15 years ago, sounds like a long time, but he did an interview with a French author and, and it's still pertinent to our day. Um, I think France was ahead of us 15 years ago in terms of skepticism and cynicism and, and what, who is this Jesus? And 15 years ago, he does this interview with a French author named Mitcha. And he starts telling this author about his relationship with Jesus. It's not on the screen, but just listen with me. He says this, it's a mind-blowing concept that the God of the universe might be looking for a relationship with people. But the thing that keeps me on my knees is the difference between grace and karma, to which Mitcha says that doesn't make it any clearer for me. Bono says this. He says, at the center of all religions, is the idea of karma. In other words, you, you get what you put out. What, what, what you put out comes back to you. He says this, grace defies reason and logic. Love interrupts, if you like, the consequences of your actions, which in my case 
is very good news because I've done a lot of stupid stuff in my life. To which the interviewer says, I'd be interested to hear more about that. (laughs) To which Bono says, that's between me and God. Um, But I'd be in big trouble if karma was going to be my judge. I'm holding out for grace. I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins into the cross because I know who I am and I hope I don't have to depend on my own religiosity. To which the interviewer responds, the son of God who takes away the sins of the world. I wish I, wish I could believe in that. To which Bono begins to reply and talk about how this son of God was a lamb a lamb without spot and blemish, who actually did come to take the sins of the world away. Last, last little interjection to which the interviewer says, Christ has his rank among the world's great thinkers, but son of God, isn't that a little far-fetched? And Bono ends like this. I'm gonna read it for you. He is either Messiah who takes away the sins of the world or he's a nutcase. The idea that the entire course of civilization for over half of the globe could have had its fate changed and turned upside down by a nutcase, for me, that's far-fetched. When I look at the cross of Christ, when I see all my sin up there and everyone else's, I ask myself a question a lot of people have asked. I asked, who is this man? And was he who he said he was or was he just a religious nut? And there it is, that's the question and no one can talk you into it and no one can talk you out of it. So that's just how how I wanna end. Who is this Jesus? How do you see him? And how you relate to him, how you express love for him shows how you see him and how I see him. How do we become a person like this woman who leads us gently to the throne of grace? How do we become marked by extravagant love? It's not about sinning greatly. It's not about, well, let me go sin more. It's about seeing rightly. Do you see your debt? The truth is all of us have sinned greatly. We had an insurmountable debt we could not pay and it got covered and canceled at great cost to the Savior. Do you see your debt? Do you see this woman? Her life, her love expressed challenges our lack of love. Do we see it? And then do we see this Jesus? Do we see him as the only one who can authoritatively say to us, no one else can, go in peace. So before I close this in prayer, I just want you to take a couple minutes. There's some of those very reflection questions I just asked would be on the screen. Just take a couple minutes and let the Lord do some work in your heart. I'll pray for us and then we'll get to tangibly rehearse and remind ourselves of his love through the Lord's table, through communion. Let me just pray for us before Adam leads us to communion. Father, we love you. Um, I just pray that um, you just put front and center, not, not many things, but just one thing in our mind and heart, just the Lord Jesus Christ. I just pray where there is lack of love in our hearts, would you be so kind to reveal it? Lord, I just confess before our church body how, man, at times I can just be given to many things and miss you, Jesus, the one thing. I just confess that I can be busy about many things and and miss you, the central thing. I just confess that I can hold back, just like Simon. I, I just long to be a man that gives all. Jesus, would it be your beauty that compels us towards that today? And I just thank you that um, we don't perform uh, to get your love, but we just obey and lean in because we have it, because we've been forgiven much. Show us in your grace um, that we, we have indeed been forgiven much. Uh, we love you, and we just pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. 
A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15, and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.